that God brought everything out of nothing. He brought light out of darkness. He brought order out of chaos. He brought life out of non-life. He brought tremendous abundance of life and great variety of life. And he told each of these different kinds of life to be fruitful and multiply. So our dominion, if it's to reflect his, as it should, since we're made in his image, our dominion should be like that. Hey guys, welcome to Filter. The world can be a confusing place to live in, and what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you might face the chaos that we live in with confidence, clarity, and courage that comes from the resources that we have in the Christian worldview. On today's show, I'm really excited to have another repeat guest. Uh, Today we have Dr. Calvin Beisner joining us on the show for this special Earth Day episode. One of the common topics that is discussed in our culture today and society, uh, one of the hot topics, I guess you could say, is the uh, the topic of climate change or global warming. So hot topic, no pun intended there. But it, it's one of those debated questions because it crosses over several different lines, the, the lines of science and politics, economics, and uh, all the way down to uh, religious and worldview beliefs. Uh, it's a really big topic, and on Earth Day, uh, across our culture, it, this uh, topic is being highlighted. It, we're celebrating it. We're uh, talking about different ways to conserve and to protect the environment uh, and to be best stewards of the world around us. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of different views and opinions out there on uh, exactly what climate change means, uh, how much the climate is changing, and what the proper solutions are to climate change, or to just living properly as stewards of the world around us. And so Dr. Beisner is one of the best people that you can go to uh, to receive a Christian viewpoint and answer on these issues. Uh, Dr. Beisner, he's an academic, he is a professional uh, Christian ethicist, and he is the leader and national spokesperson for a group called the Cornwall Alliance. The Cornwall Alliance puts out all kinds of excellent resources uh, related to the environment, related to economics, uh, politics, uh, and a whole host of other topics. It's basically a big uh, collaboration of, of academics from science, philosophy, political philosophy, and, and uh, economics, and so on. Uh, and so this is just a really great conversation that I got to have with Dr. Calvin Beisner on this topic. It was really helpful for me, and I think it will be for you, too. While you're here, would you consider subscribing to Filter? Uh, would you leave us a rating and review if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify? Uh, if you're on YouTube, would you give this video a like and uh, maybe even share it? Doing these things really helps us out to uh, spread the word about this show uh, and attract more people who can be helped by the message. So once again, I'm really excited about this episode. Without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Dr. Calvin Beisner. Dr. Beisner, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Well, you are a previous guest who has uh, returned to join us again. We did an episode together back in late October or early November. And, uh, Something like that. Yeah, and, and so it's just it's exciting to have you back. I really appreciate you coming back on. Well, it's a privilege for me to be, to be back with you. I really enjoyed it last time. expect I will this time. Me too. So I reached out to you because uh, I was looking in the calendar and thinking about uh, what, what's coming up in, in the world and in society and what are some things that, uh, that we can provide resources to Christians and thinking about. And I was thinking of how uh, Earth Day is right around the corner, uh, something that, that is celebrated every April uh, by many who uh, care about the climate or maybe would even describe themselves as environmentalists, climate activists, and so on. And uh, one of the one of the best people that I know to talk to about uh, understanding climate change, environmentalism, uh, various green solutions, and everything else coming from a Christian worldview uh, is you. And so I reached out and said, "Let's do an episode together." And uh, you were immediately on board. So we're here today to talk about uh, Earth Day environmentalism, the green movement. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be fun. 
Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, a lot of a lot of interesting stuff to talk about in this. But it's it's funny. The word environment comes from a French word meaning to turn around, and it literally means surroundings. Uh, you know, most people when they think of environment, they think of okay, if I go out to some place that looks like human beings have never been there, uh, <laughs> that's environment. You know, <laughs> or yeah. uh, you know, when I'm out in so-called nature, right? But yeah. if environment just is surroundings, uh, that's everything. You know, the mm-hmm. hair on the back of my head is part of my surrounding, the surroundings, and so is Alpha Centauri. You know? <laughs> so so uh, environment's a pretty big subject. <laughs> we could talk about a lot of different things and still be on it. Yeah. Well, we'll narrow it down to uh, the, the area's concern for climate sure. activists, uh, which, as I've been preparing and reading a little bit more, uh, turns out to be a pretty wide area of concern that goes beyond what I think most of us would just consider to be quote unquote climate issues. Let's just start with the, with the environmentalist or environmentalism or climate change movement. Uh, when did this start? What, what's the history behind uh, the movement that we're seeing today? Well, the environmental movement is much older than specifically the climate change movement. Uh, So we can talk about those two distinctly. The actual term environmentalism wasn't coined until either the very late 60s or the the early 1970s. Um, There's some uncertainty as to just exactly when it first got used. Um, Prior to that, (coughs) excuse me, the more typical term was uh, conservationism or the conservation movement. And um, that that was uh, that was something that grew interestingly enough mainly out of the more conservative uh, in American politics, the more Republican branch of politics, than the more liberal, uh, say in America, Democratic branch of politics. And it was fundamentally the notion that uh, we have a, a responsibility to conserve natural resources, which does not mean not to use them at all, but to use them in a way that is efficient, that doesn't waste them, that uh, tries to make sure that we're not using them at a rate that is more rapid, that they are replenished through natural processes. Uh, And that's more or less fitting uh, as you go, for example, from something that is Uh, very obviously renewable, like a forest or a wheat field, you know, uh, to something that is far less so, like oil or gas or coal or any mineral that we take out of the earth. Now, you know, there are some disagreements as to exactly how oil is formed. Uh, There are some who think that it it, uh, comes up out of the earth's mantle, others who think that it is entirely a, a result of of biological uh, degrading under the uh, under pressure and heat, but at any rate, conservationism was a fairly conservative thing. Uh, the in in the nineteen thirties and forties, increasingly, the ecological movement, a movement more focused on the idea that the need is to try to keep nature. Uh, sort of happening as nature does automatically without human intervention, okay? Uh, Try Mm -hmm. to minimize the human impact on the natural world. That movement became increasingly uh, common in the 1930s, 1940s, then especially picked up in the 50s and 60s, uh, and it took on the name the preservationist movement instead of conservationist. Conservatives, conservationists, didn't think in terms of preserving nature. They thought in terms of using it in uh, a wise and uh, you know uh, sustainable way. The preservationist movement thought in terms of trying to preserve nature as we find it supposedly untouched by human hands. Uh, the problem with that is mm-hmm. that historically aside from some extremely remote places like Antarctica or, you know, the, the top 5,000 feet of the Himalayas or something like that, 
there were no places that were untouched by human hands. Uh, and so the preservationist movement eventually just kind of ran up against that, that hard, cold fact. And then it gave way to the environmental movement. And the environmental movement or environmentalism uh, really rose in the 60s and 70s. And it had a number of sort of basic ideas, one of which was that nature is best untouched by human hands. And another of, of which was that nature knows best, that nature knows better than we do. And of course, these ideas uh, assume that human beings are not a part of nature, which is a rather interesting thing and inconsistent with the fact that most environmentalists have either a, a, uh, a materialistic, naturalistic, uh, Darwinian evolutionary worldview in which nature is all that is, including humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no God, and people are not made in God's image, and we are simply somewhat more complex than, say, amoebas and, and horses and apes. Uh, but we're not fundamentally different in, in kind. Um, and then it's, it, it also, uh, this environmentalist insistence that, uh, that nature knows best and it's best untouched by human hands uh, really tends to denigrate the role of humans and see us as necessarily harming nature whenever we have an impact on it. In fact, the very choice of the word impact by environmentalists is rather interesting. You know, if you look up impact in dictionaries, it has to do with the collision of one thing with another. Uh, if, if I get punched mm -hmm. in, the, in the cheek here, that's an impact, right? So we tend to think of impacts in a negative way. Uh, had they talked of human influence, well, that's a more neutral term. Influence can be good or bad. Impact is pretty well always thought of in terms of something bad. So what this does is it rules God out from the very start, and it rules out the notion that God made human beings in his image and that he gave us a, a mandate, a, a, you know, a commission, so to speak, uh, as we read in Genesis 1.28, when God had created man, male and female, after his own image, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth. Uh, now, <coughs> excuse me, unfortunately, also, <coughs> especially influenced by Lynn White Jr.'s uh, very famous essay on the the uh, religious roots of our ecological crisis mm -hmm. back in 1967 in Science Magazine, um, much of the environmental movement thinks that this verse, Genesis 128, uh, really was used by Jews and Christians as license to just abuse and exploit the earth to, uh, to use it with complete disregard for ongoing health, for the needs of future generations, anything like that. Well, that was an absolute caricature. It was, it was complete misrepresentation. You can go through the whole history of, of pre-Christian rabbinic commentary and you know, post-incarnation Christian commentary on Genesis 128 and never find anybody saying that. But that mm -hmm. was what Lynn White said Christians thought. And for that reason, much of environmentalism became explicitly anti-Christian. And uh, that's really sad because the truth is that because God did make us in his image and he did give us a commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, that could be the key to our best use of it. Because if instead of this notion that we're supposed to, you know, that, that we're free to abuse the earth, use it in selfish and destructive ways, if instead we look mm -hmm. at what dominion should look like based on the verses that come before verse 28 of Genesis, we read in Genesis 1, 1 through 25, before the creation of man and, and woman, that God brought everything out of nothing, 
He brought light out of darkness. He brought order out of chaos. He brought life out of non-life. He brought tremendous abundance of life and great variety of life. And he told each of these different kinds of life to be fruitful and multiply. So our dominion, if it's to reflect his as it should, since we're made in his image, our dominion should be like that. We should be bringing more out of less. That is using things very efficiently. We should be uh, bringing greater and greater understanding, light, knowledge, out of less understanding. We should be bringing life out of non-life, abundance of life, variety of life. At the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, we, we sort of uh, summarize this that we call godly dominion, not, mm-hmm. not evil dominion, as men and women created in God's image, working lovingly together to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. And that means really we're addressing the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. And when we put it that way, then we see how this biblical understanding of human beings and our relationship to the rest of creation can point us to a highly positive, a wonderfully creative and productive and and uh, beauty-enhancing uh, and fruitfulness-enhancing way of treating the world around us. Mm-hmm. So now, <laughs> I kind of went far afield of your original question. That's kind of up into the 70s for environmentalism as opposed to a Christian understanding of creation stewardship is really what we would call this. Yeah. The climate change movement, really, uh, you can see early roots of it as, as early as, say, the 1950s or thereabouts, with a few people beginning to worry primarily about global cooling because we were putting aerosols into the atmosphere, dust and, and uh, uh, pollutants that actually reflected some sunlight back out into space so that it didn't warm the surface. So they were concerned about global cooling. Uh, In the mid-1970s, basically starting around 1977, there was a reverse in the cooling trend in in Earth's atmosphere that had been running since about 1940. Uh, And then warming started happening. So then they started talking about global warming as the problem. And uh, that trend largely peaked out around 1998 or 2000, went flat or actually began to decline. And so that was when really the term climate change became far more, uh, more common than global warming as the fear. And of course, that's particularly uh, convenient because climate's always changing. So as long as climate's changing, you can be complaining about climate change. The only issue is, uh, you know, is human activity causing it? And is it for the better or for the worse? And the assumption that nature knows best and that human beings should diminish, should should minimize our impact on the earth uh, predisposes these folks to think that all change in climate is bad. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they look for. That's what they measure. Uh, and and that sets us off and running to all kinds of claims about dangerous man-made global warming, climate change, despite the fact that the empirical evidence indicates otherwise. Yeah. So one of the things what I'm hearing is that there is a there seems to be a very vast difference. There's a there's a great divide and gap between the worldview of Christianity and the worldview of climate change activism. Uh, it, that there that we're operating from very different sets of presuppositions, um, and you could even say operating from a very different set of uh, religious beliefs, uh, because there does seem to be somewhat of a uh, religious nature to the comments of climate change activists. Very often, uh, so if there is this worldview divide, what would you say is the greatest areas of contrast between the Christian worldview and the worldview of climate change activism. Yeah. Um, let me get to the areas of contrast in just a moment. Um, first, let me just acknowledge that there are plenty of people 
on the other side of the climate change controversy debate, um, insofar as they're willing to debate, uh, there are plenty of people on the other side who themselves personally embrace the Christian worldview. They believe in God, the Trinity. They believe in the uh, in divine creation of the universe. They believe that God has given us a transcendent moral law to which we are accountable. All of these different things that are part of the Christian worldview. Personally, they would embrace these, mm-hmm. um, but. What I find is that many of them, there's a disconnect between their personal Christian worldview and what they're doing in science. And so what we what we need to do is to try to aim for some consistency. Now, for some contrasts, um, you know, the, the biblical Christian worldview says that there is an eternal, uh, well, we could Put it, we could start this way with the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, asks in question four, what is God? The answer is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom, power, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. The biblical worldview affirms that. It affirms that this God uh, existed for all eternity prior to creating anything. He exists now. He controls all things. He is sovereign over everything, uh, and he created this universe uh, in a specific way to display his own glory in terms of his wisdom and his power and even his justice and his grace. Uh, He populated it with all kinds of life, but especially with human beings, the only ones made in his image, And he gave us instructions as to how we're to live. And because we rebelled against those instructions, uh, he judges us and he condemns. Um, But he also provides a a way of our being reconciled to him by sending his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, to rise from the dead, showing that his payment was received, was uh, approved. And uh, then we're told that whoever believes in him is reconciled to God. Has We have our sins forgiven. We are justified. We're declared righteous in God's sight. All right? So there's, there's part of the biblical worldview combined with the gospel itself. And I really think that we we make a big mistake as Christians when we try to try to sort of cordon off worldview questions from more uh, central theology and, and gospel questions. But this biblical worldview also tells us that uh, that when God created us in His image, He made us rational as He is rational. Uh, he made us to recognize truth and uh, to, to learn truth. He gave us minds to think the way his mind thinks. We don't always do that. <laughs> we rebel even in our minds. Uh, and when we forget the creator-creature distinction, that fundamental distinction between God the creator and all the rest, everything else, when we forget that, Scripture tells us that we are we're made to be worshipers. We naturally worship. If we're not going to worship God the Creator, we will worship some part of the creation instead, whether it's ourselves or the earth or the universe or, or something, the state, uh, the family, our children, money, sex, power. We are inherently worshipers. If we don't worship God, we'll worship some part of the creation. And Romans tells us that when we exchange the the creator for the creation, we begin to worship and serve the creature instead of the creator, then God gives us over to a depraved mind. We profess ourselves to be wise, but in fact we become fools. And then we don't understand the world around us. You know, the scriptures tell us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
Well, if you've ruled God out of your worldview, you have no fear of God. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you're going to descend into folly. It doesn't mean that you're going to be stupid about everything. We can have very brilliant physicists, very brilliant mathematicians, uh, very brilliant biologists. But when it comes to the fundamental questions of our moral responsibility and so on, uh, they can become real fools. And we can see that sometimes in their actual work. It's, it's truly stunning to me the amount of just plain silliness that goes on, particularly in so-called environmental science. And I think that comes from the lack of the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. Hmm. So what would you say is some of that silliness? Because I think that uh, I think many Christians, we often have, if we're not very familiar with this debate, with the science, yeah. uh, then it might be difficult to distinguish between uh, fact or foolishness, to distinguish between even between what is worldview uh, and what is actual data. Yeah. Uh, what is because everything is just presented to us as this is the consensus of the experts. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so how do and Christians discern? What, how do we, how do we start to build up our, our uh, ability to divide between uh, what is truth and, and what is error? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the Bible warns us against following crowds and doing evil. And the whole appeal to consensus, for example, about climate change, Mm -hmm. is a matter of following a crowd. Now, you know, even if you're not a Christian, you can understand why this is a problem. Aristotle, who was by no means a Christian, uh, counted uh, argumentum ad populum, that is, appeal to the crowd, Mm -hmm. to the majority, as a logical fallacy. Because, in fact... Counting votes isn't how you determine truth. You determine truth by having true axioms, that is, starting points, uh, what, um, what innately known truths, and then having logical inferences from those. And then, to the best of your ability, you can stretch that out to some empirical things in terms of observing of empirical uh, phenomena outside of ourselves through the five senses and then aiding those with various equipment. But truth has nothing to do with counting votes. And uh, Michael Crichton, who was a Harvard, uh, Harvard educated and even Harvard teaching medical uh, scientist, uh, wrote at one point, if it's consensus, it's not science. If it's science, it's not consensus. And the reason for that is precisely that the whole proper functioning of science is designed to challenge consensus. Uh, A a philosopher of science, um, uh, let's see, Merton was his last name. I can't remember his first name at the moment. Back in 1938, he wrote a very important uh, article on the philosophy of science, and in it, He said, in most walks of life, skepticism is thought thought to be a vice. In science, skepticism is a virtue. Now, that's really profound, and it is precisely the opposite of what we see happening around us now in discussions about climate change and some other issues as well. Um, skeptics are labeled science deniers. Mm -hmm. But if skepticism is a virtue in science, then to oppose skepticism is to be a science denier. Uh, This is, I think, really well well fits with with, uh, the Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman, uh, who wrote in a book in the late 1950s and lectured many different times about this and One of his lectures in 1964 at Cornell University was actually captured on video, not so common back in those days. Uh, You can can, uh, 
you know, search the web for Richard Feynman, um, Key to Science, Key to Science. Brief, I think it runs about four minutes, a clip from his lecture in which he explains to students, uh, and remember, this is a Nobel Prize winning physicist, one of the most famous physicists of the 20th century. Feynman says, when we want to find out a new natural, not a new law, but we want to discover a new, a fresh, a natural law. If we want to discover how something in nature works, here's how we do it. First, we guess. It was funny because the students kind of giggle because they don't think of guessing as part of science, but it really is. That's where it all starts. Mm-hmm. First, we guess. Then, we make predictions of what we think we should find in the real world if our guess is true. Then we go out into the real world and we make observations. And that might be out in nature, it might be in the laboratory, running experiments, whatever, but you're making observations in the the real world. And Feynman says, if the observations contradict our predictions, then our theory, our guess, our hypothesis is wrong. And it doesn't matter how smart you are or how beautiful your theory is, uh, and I would add, and it doesn't matter how many people agree with you. If the observations contradict the predictions, then your guess, your theory is wrong. And then what you do as a good scientist is you report those contradicting observations and you go back to the drawing board and you come up with a new hypothesis and new predictions, and you test those in the same way. Mm -hmm. And that may happen over and over and over again. That's real science. That's the real scientific method. Unfortunately, what so many people in, especially the climate change alarmist uh, community, are doing is they're saying, look, we have these computer models They model how the climate system works. And they tell us that if we increase carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere by such and such a percent, so much increase in global average surface temperature will be the result. And we need to just take that as gospel truth. Mm -hmm. That's not science. That's not even good religion. (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Luke commended the Bereans for testing uh, what Paul told them by comparing it with the Old Testament scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Peter says that we haven't just followed uh, myths and fables. We've followed clear evidence. Paul says that, uh, that uh, the evidence of the resurrection of Christ is that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12 and then to others and then to as many as 500 people at a time, many of whom were still alive, go interview them. I mean, this is, this is not uh, fideism. This is not, uh, you know, pie in the sky. This is very rational approach. It is indeed scientific. Well, unfortunately, much of the climate alarmist community just ignores that. And then when you challenge They say, well, the computer models show. No, computer models are nothing but the guesses, the hypotheses. And their projections of what happens are the predictions. Then you have to do the real-world observations. And when we do that, we discover that the computer models uh, simulate, on average, two to four times as much warming as actually observed over the relevant period, mm. meaning they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And if they're wrong, then they give us no rational basis for any predictions about future temperature and no rational basis for any sort of policy designed to respond to such predictions. Yeah. So it, it sounds like uh, whenever we <clears throat> hear about or we're told this is the scientific consensus, uh, what we should understand is is that most often what we're hearing is this is the scientific guessing, right? Well, it's a, a scientific consensus and scientific guessing are not the same thing. But what we are finding is that 
there were a whole bunch of scientists, and you know, they're genuine scientists. They've got their MS or their PhD degree, and, and they work in the field and so on. They're genuine scientists. Mm-hmm. But we talked earlier about how some Christians have a disconnect between their worldview and their actual uh, practice mm-hmm. in science, for example. I think there are a lot of scientists who have a disconnect between their training as scientists and now their performance, particularly as scientists who have become advocates for a particular policy agenda and who therefore sort of turn a blind eye to contrary observations and refuse to go back and rework the theory, the hypothesis that led to the predictions of the climate models. Um, but you know, when, when they do do that, um, the really interesting thing is that some of, them, some of them are honest enough that they wind up changing position. I think a great example of that would be Judith Curry, uh, formerly of Georgia Tech. She was the uh, chair of the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech for many years. Really outstanding global, you know, global class scientist, uh, climate scientist. Mm-hmm. And when what's called Climate Gate happened back in in 2009, when a bunch of emails got leaked from uh, the University of East Anglia, University of East Anglia's uh, climatic research unit, and it was shown in these emails, you know, you could see climate alarmist scientists like Michael Mann, for instance, and various others uh, fabricating data, suppressing contrary data, uh, intimidating scientists who found the contrary data so that they didn't dare publish their results, intimidating journal editors so that they wouldn't publish such results, um, and, and corrupting the whole peer review process. When that happened, Judith Curry thought, gee, maybe I should actually correspond with our critics. And she did, and she discovered that they were some pretty sharp people. And she began to look more and more deeply into the difference between the real-world data and the computer model simulations or predictions or projections, whatever you want to call them. And she wound up changing sides. She went from having embraced the notion that our emissions of CO2 were causing potentially dangerous to maybe even catastrophic global warming to now she refers to herself as a lukewarmer. Yeah, we add CO2 to the atmosphere. It will warm things a little bit, but not terribly much. And basically, it looks like most of that's to the good, not to the bad. Um, and she's uh, she's quite brilliant. People can read her work at judithcurry.com. Just wonderful stuff. Yeah, so... Uh, often what is observed doesn't match the guessing when are we by, by the, uh, climate alarmists. Right. It doesn't match it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and you were saying how sometimes what happens is that people, you know, scientists, just like any other person, we can become more attached to, uh, an ideological cause, uh, than we can to the truth. Uh, we, yeah. to our to our visions and our guesses rather than to the data and so and, and this is what it sometimes causes um, uh, climate alarmists or activists to not be willing to uh, you know see what has been observed and yeah. when you said that I think it, it helped to shine some light on something that's always bugged me when it comes to this debate and uh, especially the more alarmist activist side of the aisle something which has always bugged me which is that uh, why is it that the solution to climate change is always socialism? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, By the way, that's always been the solution to pretty much every big environmental problem, uh, you know, alleged environmental problem. Mm-hmm. Population, uh, you know, overpopulation. We need, we need government to determine how many people you can, how many children you can have. We need government programs to slow population growth, particularly among the undesirable, uh, whether that's more, you know, people of greater color, 
I mean, the, the, the eugenics movement of the 19th, late 19th century, early 20th mm-hmm. century was thoroughly racist. And they used Darwinian thinking about evolution and the notion that, you know, that white Anglos or, or German Aryans were the, the top of the evolutionary chain. And, and we needed to, uh, to reduce the size of other races so that they didn't compete with us for the limited resources of the earth. Uh, now, that called for major government control over people's lives. It called for socialism. Uh, the fear of running out of resources always calls for big government programs to solve it. Uh, the fear of, of uh, dangerous air pollution or water pollution, the, the solution is always more government. Nevertheless, even though, in fact, historically, governments have a far worse environmental record than private businesses do. And socialist countries have a far worse environmental record than, than capitalist countries do. I discuss that in my booklet, Is Capitalism Bad for the Environment? Which, by the way, is available through our online store at Cornwall Alliance. Uh, you know, all of these things. Um, and then <laughs> the solution to global cooling uh, was bigger government, global control over uh, air, air emissions of of uh, soot and other uh, aerosols into the air that blocked sunlight. And then when we changed to fears of global warming, the solution again was socialism, more government control and on a more global level. Uh, so it's, it's really kind of, kind of uh, revealing that it may not be entirely scientifically driven. But what if what if socialism is the answer? Is it would the proposed policies that we see from uh, such as the Green New Deal, proposed policies like the Green New Deal or policies promoted by activists, Greta Thunberg and others, would these help? Would, would they would they have an impact on climate change? Um, certainly not a significant one. Um, for example, the Paris Climate Agreement. There are really only two facts you need to know about that. The first is. How much would it cost all of the world's countries who have signed on to it to implement that as they've committed from now to the end of this century? The answer to that, assuming their own understanding, this is not challenging what they say. The answer to that is anywhere from one to two trillion dollars per year. That's 70, you know, thinking from 2030 onward, uh, 70 to 140 trillion dollars. The second question is, how much reduction in global average temperature increase would be achieved by this? And again, assuming what the architects themselves say about the warming effect of CO2 and mm-hmm. how much CO2 would be removed by implementing the Paris Agreement, granting all of their, <coughs> their assumptions, the answer is three-tenths of one degree Fahrenheit. Now, that's way too small for us to measure accurately on a global scale. Uh, It's way too small to have any impact on any ecosystem. It's way too small to have any impact on human well-being. It's a complete waste. We can't even do, we won't know in 2100 if we've managed it. We Hmm. won't know because we Hmm. cannot measure to that degree of accuracy on a global scale. So, we're being asked to spend 23.3 to 46.6 trillion dollars per tenth of a degree Fahrenheit of temperature reduction. I mean, that's just silly. The Green New Deal is even less effective because it would only reduce American emissions, not worldwide emissions. It would have a smaller impact on global temperature, but the way it's structured, it would be more expensive per tenth of a degree temperature reduction to Americans than even the Paris Agreement would be. Now, another way to look at this is, okay, so what do they want to do? They they want to substitute so-called green energy for (laughs) conventional energy. Uh, Right now, the world gets about 85 to 86% of all its energy from fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas. They want to substitute wind and solar. And they call these green or renewable energy. The problem is that to build 
the wind turbines and to install them, and to build the solar arrays and to install them, actually requires mining a whole lot more stuff out of the earth than building gas-fired or coal-fired or, or, or petroleum-fired electric generating stations. Uh, and it not only requires pulling more stuff out of the earth to do this, but it also requires covering a vastly greater amount of land for the same amount of energy production. Uh, in fact, this month, for, uh, for your viewers um, and for anybody else, the Cornwall Alliance is offering this, I think, a really excellent study called Mines, Minerals, and Green Energy, a Reality Check by Mark Mills, who's one of my favorite scholars on energy physics, energy engineering, energy economics, energy policy. Brilliant, brilliant scholar. Mines, Minerals, and Green Energy, a Reality Check. And in this, he talks about all the different ways in which wind and solar in producing the mechanisms by which we generate electricity from them mm -hmm. and in placing them and in running them are actually far, far more impactful, and I'm using that word impact in that negative sense intentionally, on the environment than coal, oil, and natural gas. Wow. It's quite surprising, but it's very, very hard data, very hard empirical facts. So for the month of, of April, the Cornwall Alliance will be glad to send a free copy of this as our way of saying thanks when, when anybody gives a donation of literally any size, doesn't matter how small, and asks for it. Uh, for them to do this, all they need to do is go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the donate button, and as they fill out the donation form, when they come to the comments field, if they'll just type in uh, promo code 21-04, that's for the year 2021 and the month April, the fourth month, promo code 21-04, and then just write in mines, minerals, and green energy. And we'll be glad to send a free copy of this. It's a tremendous resource, and I would love to see it in the hand of every every school teacher uh, of any subject, but especially of subjects related particularly to environmental stewardship, to economics, to energy, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I'll be sure to include information about that in the show notes for anyone listening uh, who wants to make sure they get a copy of that. The info will be in the show notes. So make sure you check that out. I'll have a link and a reminder of that promo code as well. Thank you. So, so, so back to the, the proposed solutions to climate change. So you explained they'd be very expensive, might not make that big of a difference uh, in the climate, a difference that we might not even be able to measure or judge if they did make a difference. Yeah. Um, you know, and moreover, these extremely expensive economy wrecking solutions would be the most hurtful to the poorest in the world, right? Absolutely. Uh, but yeah. but it, it's claimed that climate change is an existential crisis. It is the crisis of our time. That it, it that it's the it's the World War Two of our yeah. generation. So isn't it worth yeah. wrecking the economy to try to face this problem? Uh, let me read you on the Earth Day website. They said. Uh, as the world returns to normal, we can't go back to business as usual. Together, we can prevent the coming disasters of climate change and environmental destruction. Together, we can restore our Earth. How do you respond to that kind of alarmism? Look, this is the rhetoric of, of movement advocates. It is not the rhetoric of serious scientists, even on the other side of this debate from where I am. You can read all through the technical reports, thousands of pages of technical reports from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change, which is supposedly the Bible of the climate change movement. You can read all through their technical reports on this and never find language like existential threat. What you will find over and over again is... <sighs> Simulations, projections, tentative predictions 
of warming that really is pretty well toward the low end and uh, not terribly dangerous. Uh, the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, published in 2012 a special report on extreme weather in which they addressed the question, is global warming causing more frequent or more intense severe weather events? And for one type after another, whether it's you know hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, droughts, heat waves, cold snaps, wildfires, uh, anything that you think of, uh, what they concluded was that there was no evidence that there had been an increase in the frequency or the severity of any of these during the period of alleged man-made global warming from roughly 1960 to the present. Um, and on issue after issue, they said that they had at best low confidence that global warming might lead to any increase in any of these. Now, hmm. life is full of trade-offs. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you could just decide to stay in bed all day, and that would eliminate your risk of falling down the stairs and breaking your leg or your neck, right? But of course, it would deprive you of all sorts of benefits of being up and around. We make trade-offs all the time, and what we need to do is to learn how to make trade-offs for the good, where the benefit outweighs the risk. Well, when we look at the benefits that we receive from fossil fuels, first in terms of the energy that they, that they yield to us, that we derive from them, Roughly 86%, as I said, of all the energy that the world consumes right now comes from fossil fuels. That is absolutely indispensable to lifting and keeping any society out of poverty. No society has ever grown out of poverty without it. No society ever will stay out of poverty without it. Uh, it's indispensable. Well, poverty is a far greater risk to human health and longevity than anything related to climate. You know, people can thrive in any climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert to the Brazilian rainforest if they have adequate income. But if they're dirt poor, if they're living on the equivalent of, say, $1.50 a day, U.S. dollars, uh, they can't thrive in the best tropical paradise. Wealth, prosperity is indispensable to human health and longevity. Mm -hmm. Now, that's just looking at the energy side. Everything we do, we make with energy. Food, clothing, shelter, hospital care, education, transportation, communication, everything uses energy. The more expensive that energy is, the less of it we can afford to use, and therefore the less of all those other things we get, right? That's critically important. And for the poor a higher percentage of their income goes to paying energy costs than for the middle class or the wealthy. So if you increase the cost of energy, it hurts the poor far more than it hurts the middle class and the wealthy. Yeah. So that's just a look at the energy side of the question about what do we get from fossil fuels. Then there's the other side, and that is carbon dioxide added to the atmosphere. Well, the warmists will say, oh, but that's causing all this warming. Well, as a matter of fact, the best evidence indicates that, that carbon dioxide is, is a very bit player in this. It has a very little contribution, real, but not, not a big contribution to global warming. But there's a different thing that comes from more CO2 in the atmosphere, and that is enhanced plant growth. Plants use CO2 in photosynthesis. If CO2 concentration in the atmosphere were to drop below about 175 parts per million, all photosynthesis would stop. All plants would die almost immediately, and therefore all animal life, including human, would cease very, very quickly. Before the Industrial Revolution, 
CO2 concentration in the atmosphere was down around perhaps 270, maybe 280 parts per million. And it had been falling for quite a long time. In various different geological ages before this, CO2 concentration in the atmosphere has been as much as 7, 8, 9, 10,000 parts per million. Many times what it was before the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. And in those periods, we didn't have extreme heat. We didn't have eco-catastrophe. In fact, in the warmest periods of Earth's history, we've seen the most growth of vegetation and the most thriving of all life because all animal life depends on vegetation. All right? So, as we add CO2 to the atmosphere, we're causing all plants to grow, to grow better and to grow faster and in more places. I can summarize it this way. For every doubling of CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, you get, you get an average 35% increase in plant growth efficiency. Plants grow better in warmer and cooler temperatures and in wetter and drier soils. Consequently, they increase their ranges. Plants that used to not grow where it was a little warmer than where they do now grow where it's a little warmer and likewise where it's a little cooler. Plants that used to not grow in drier areas now can grow better in drier areas. They also make better use of soil nutrients. They resist diseases and pests better. That also means they increase their ranges. And we have clear empirical observational demonstration of this from satellite imagery showing that leaf cover around the world has uh, risen dramatically since 1979 when we first were, well, actually since the late 60s, when we were first able to do this kind of satellite leaf imagery. Mm -hmm. And so we're greening the planet. And best of all, Plants also improve their fruit-to-fiber ratio, which means that you get higher crop yields for pretty much every crop we grow. What that means is that food becomes more abundant for everything that eats plants and for everything that eats something that eats plants. And the poor benefit from that more than anybody else. So, you know, this is, this is a win-win situation. We get more energy. And we get more food from using fossil fuels. It's a, it's a tremendous uh, benefit to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember. To, uh, in addition to the fact that we're, we are using up far less space for the production of that energy, uh, you would have to cover roughly one third of the U.S. land mass with wind turbines in order to produce the same amount of electricity that we use right now. And if we were to replace all internal combustion engines with electric engines for our vehicles, uh, you would have to increase that from a third to a full half of the entire U.S. landmass to do that. Instead, with fossil fuels and nuclear and some hydro, we produce all of that electricity uh, on far less than 5% of the U.S. land mass. In fact, under 2% of the U.S. land mass. Wow. And that means we're protecting biodiversity. Because when you cover vast stretches with solar panels and wind turbines, uh, wildlife cannot thrive in them as it does without them. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, watching you in a conversation with uh, Bill McKibben, I think was his ah, name yes. at, at uh, New Orleans seminary about this. And he kept arguing, just saying, why can't we just have more solar and wind? Why can't we have more solar panels? They're cleaner and, and, and everything else. And, uh, and you were trying to explain this, this uh, cost benefit analysis. Like you essentially just gave us with fossil fuels and energy. And, and I remember, I remember you telling him saying, look, would you like to go to uh, to a, a village in India where someone is living in a hut and strap a solar panel to every single one of them so they can live off of clean energy rather than building their economy through fossil fuels that then allows them to one day live in something better than that hut? 
And, uh, and I just remember thinking, oh, there's, there's the difference in, in the views between climate alarmism and, and a realistic view, one that seeks to not do further harm to these poor economy, economies, but raise people out of their poverty uh, versus these policies and solutions, which would actually do greater, greater harm. Yeah, and I would call it not just realistic, but humane. Yeah. I mean, we got to care about people. Yeah. Well, would you give any any last word on uh, how Christians should approach this topic and what Christians should think and do about creation care? Well, the first thing I'd say is simply that if they're going to take any strong positions on something like this, they really need to do some homework. They need to learn a lot. Uh, and, you know, okay, I'll recommend a good place to do that. CornwallAlliance.org. That's our website. We have hundreds of articles, a good number of major studies. Uh, we have almost 70 different scholars in our network of, of scholars, roughly a third are natural scientists, including some of the world's top climate scientists. Roughly a third are economists, uh, especially of either economic development for poor countries or environmental economics. And then roughly a third are theologians, philosophers, ethicists, and the like. And uh, we just have, I think, tremendous information there. Uh, they can uh, subscribe to our email newsletter. It comes out a couple times a week. It's always educational. Uh, that's entirely free. Uh, and then they can visit our online store, cornwallalliance.org slash shop. And uh, lots of books and DVDs available there uh, for them to study. We also have a Facebook page, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, and a YouTube page, uh, YouTube channel, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Uh, on, on both of those, be sure to use the whole name because there's actually another group called Cornwall Alliance in England uh, out of, of the uh, mm -hmm. county of Cornwall in England has nothing to do with what we do, uh, but use the whole name, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation on Facebook and YouTube. But for our website, just simply cornwallalliance.org will do it. So the first thing is they need to really learn a lot. They, they need to study very carefully. Um, the second thing I think that they need to do is they need to learn to think critically. Always be testing. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast what is good. I mean, that really is the root of scientific method. I mean, if you think back to my discussion of Feynman's uh, description of how we go about learning how nature works, you make a guess, a hypothesis, then you make predictions, then you test those by comparing them with real-world observations. Similarly, we need to test all things, hold fast what is good. Uh, and then I would just encourage them to keep in mind that the worldview behind much of the environmental movement and the worldview of Christianity are diametrically opposed. Most of the environmental movement is rooted either in a naturalistic, materialistic worldview where the universe is everything and uh, uh, there is no God, there is no uh, spirit, uh, there's just matter and energy in motion, which is rather an insane idea, by the way, and it's self-refuting because if all you, you have is matter and energy in motion, then as C.S. Lewis pointed out in his chapter, The Problem of Naturalism, in his book, The Problem of Pain, uh, no, his book, Miracles, uh, as he pointed out there, the problem with naturalism is that it's actually the argument that there is no such thing as argument. Because if all is just simply matter and energy in motion, well, matter and energy in motion don't think. Consequently, mm -hmm. they can't argue. You know, when two billiard balls come together on a table, they don't sit down and have a cup of tea and discuss which one's going to go which direction at which velocity afterward. They just exchange energy and off they go. There's no rationing, you know, no rationality going on there. Well, that's the problem of naturalism, of, of materialism. The other dominant worldview among environmentalists, and I think this is increasingly uh, dominant, is the pantheistic worldview, or sometimes panentheistic or animistic. In pantheism, God is to the universe as the soul is to the human body. 
in uh, in panentheism, uh, God. I, I'm sorry. In pantheism, God is the universe. In panentheism, God is to the universe as the soul is to the body. And in animism or spiritism, there are lots of gods, lots of little spirits, and they inhabit rocks and trees and streams and mountains and things like this. And there you also, either way, break down the creator-creature distinction. And that leads, as we said earlier, to irrationality, to folly, to foolishness. So get started there. Study a lot. Pray a lot. Talk with friends. Uh, tell your friends about the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, and we hope that we can make a difference. Absolutely, and hopefully through doing these things, we can find, like you said before, more humane ways to treat this issue, approach this issue, help the world's poor, and uh, a way that's not just humane, but a way that'll also be uh, bringing greater glory to God. So there's so much more that we could talk about, but we are unfortunately out of time. I guess we'll have to save it for Earth Day next year. We'll do <laughs> we'll do a part two and and uh, dive into even more questions that I've prepared. But I just want to thank you so much for your time, Dr. Beisner. It was helpful for me. I learned a lot. I know that our listeners and viewers will as well. So just thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Great. Thank you very, very much, Aaron. And God bless you. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch up with from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.